sermon tape because I, <clears throat> I'm afraid I did some bad math before I gave my last sermon. Uh, someone may have picked up on it, but uh, I'd referred back to the time when uh, the Thyatira era began, or began, is 1858, and uh, somehow, very simple math, addition and subtraction, uh, I thought 1858 was 50 years before 1928, and it's actually 70 years. So the application that I made there uh, does not fit in terms of the church eras. However, I find it interesting in looking at it as 70 years, how God has used that and still is using 70 years. You may recall that Israel had a captivity where they were taken into Babylon for 70 years, and we'll address that uh, a little later here today. But when Christ began the New Testament church, probably on Pentecost of 31 A.D., it lasted approximately 70 years. Uh, the Apostle John wrote his epistles in the book of Revelation uh, almost at the turn of the century, and he was a very old man at that time. There had been a great falling away from truth that Paul and the others had warned of, so the church was in deep trouble at that time by 100 A.D. and had almost disappeared. In fact, you don't, even in other history, you do not read about the church of God hardly at all, after 100 A.D. Uh, Thyatira, under uh, Gilbert Cranmer, began in an organized fashion in 1858. And it was about 70 years later that God had been preparing and begun using Herbert Armstrong to begin the Sardis era. Now, the Sardis era under Herbert Armstrong had some preparation time, some training, just as the apostles did under Christ for a period of time before he actually organized the church. So, from the time that the church, Worldwide Church of God, then known as Radio, uh, was functionally organized in 1933, we find that about 70 years later, it was suffering a great falling away that had started uh, really in the 90s and carried through. But I use 1933 and 2003 because it is the 70 years, and there was a singular event that occurred in January of 2003 with which you are familiar, and we'll probably get to that a little bit more in some of the sermons during the feast. I won't go there now. But 70, 70, 70, 70 keeps coming up, and I think that important. Now, Thyatira did not disappear after 70 years. It's just that God started another movement to do a different type of work at that time. Thyatira is still around. Uh, Sardis is still around, too, even at this late date, as a few remaining pieces trying to survive that are about to die. But the church itself is basically gone. Even the name is defunct and obliterated. So, there's some survival over, but those 70 years are pretty important to understand. 
Now today, we will address uh, a word that we are very familiar with. It's on our gate out here. It's called Anatoth. I think I understand more about Anatoth today than I ever did before. After all, did we just name this village on a whim? Did we just sort of pick out a name for it and could have picked something else like New Tokyo or uh, you name it, uh, Nazareth? (laughs) You know, we could have picked something biblical like so many do, Palestine. We could have just picked any name here or there. But I submit to you that God had a purpose in this, and we will see that reflected today in Scripture, I believe, and get a better idea of what Anatoth is about. There is a lot of confusion here right now, a lot of upset, a lot of frustration. Uh, Is that prophesied? Is that part of the story of Anatoth? Let's just put that question out there and let's look at it. I want this to be a positive sermon. I don't want it to be negative in, in any way, except that we need to examine all the scriptures in the light of uh, prehistory, if you would, as we chose the name, and then the latter part of it. Let's understand, first of all, from 1 Corinthians 10, which I'm sure we all do, that Paul was addressing himself and the church in Corinth, and in chapter 9 he was talking about how we're all running a race, a spiritual race, And we all run, but we have to win the prize at the end. And encouraging them not to give up, but to go ahead and win the race that they were in. And he said in verse 27, But I keep under my body, it was speaking of a physical race here with a spiritual analogy, that he had to keep after his body, uh, and we should apply that spiritually as well as to a physical race, And bring it into subjection. And when you are running a physical race, your body, your muscles, your heart, your lungs, your mind begin to cry out, I can't do this. This is too much for me. I need to stop and rest and have a drink of water. I can't finish this race, especially if it's a long-term race, like a marathon or something of that nature as opposed to a hundred-yard dash. Your body begins to tire. It begins to rebel and it begins to cry for rest and water and perhaps food. So he said he had to bring it into subjection, not give in to his body, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So whether we are members of the body, whether we are leaders of the body, whatever, we all have the same race. We all have the same problems. We all have the same challenges. And Paul himself recognized that he himself, if he didn't stay after it, could be a castaway. So we have to understand what he's about to say in that context. And he says, moreover, brethren, in chapter 10, I would not that you should be ignorant how all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea and were baptized by Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all had the same spiritual understanding, the same food given to them by Moses. They drank of Christ uh, and what he provided for them in delivering them from Mitzrayim. 
and crossing the Red Sea and giving the manna and all the things he did, giving them the law, uh, they received a great deal from Christ. But unfortunately, being human beings, verse 5, many of them God was not well pleased with, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, he says, these things were written down for our examples. They were bad examples, and they're written so that we would not follow those. They were examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they did, not to be idolaters. Some of them put themselves and other things ahead of God. Not to commit fornication, spiritually or physical. Uh, not to tempt Christ, as some of them tempted and were destroyed of serpents. So there were different ways that they departed from God and tempted God and were destroyed. And not to murmur, as some of them murmured, but were destroyed of the destroyer. So Satan is the destroyer, and the murmuring and complaining and griping and various attitudes they had led to their destruction. Uh, God turned the devil loose on them because of those things. And he makes the point again in verse 11. Now all these things happened to them for examples, and they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. He thought Christ was coming soon in his lifetime, just as we, I think, know he is coming soon now, within a very few years. So he says, Wherefore let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So we all need to take very careful consideration of ourselves, lest as Christ is about to return, we fall. We have to endure to the end, as Christ put it in Matthew 24. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Anything that gets between us and God, we need to stay away from, be very careful of. And these things were all written down by Moses, by David in the Psalms, and all through the prophecies, and even here in New Testament prophecy written by Paul for us. So understand that the whole Bible comes under that. So anything you read in the Bible was written down for us to consider at the end time. That's the main thing I want to point out right here as we are about to go into some other scriptures. Now let's go and be turning to Jeremiah 29 because I want to pick up the context there. Uh, but let's consider the word anatoph before we get into the context and what God has to say. The word means in the Hebrew, answer to prayer. It's what the, what the name, the word means. Answer to prayer. Now there's an interesting dichotomy there in that anatothite, that is one who lives in anatoth or who was born there, uh, is the next word in the Hebrew dictionary, number 6069, and it means affliction. So you have a, a strange putting together of words here. Anatoth itself means answer or answers to prayer, where someone who lives at Anatoth is defined as affliction. Now let's see if we can understand 
why you would have, it would appear, almost opposites uh, in the definition of the place and the inhabitants thereof. I think that will become clear as we go on. So let's go then to Jeremiah 29, uh, the main body of work or words about Anatoth are in chapter 32, but we need to set the context here to understand what was going on. Here we find the words of the letter that Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the residue of the elders carried away captive to the priests, the prophets, and so on. So what he is doing is writing to those who had been taken captive. Now we know that Sardis was blown apart and died, and only remnants remain of Sardis. We also know that Laodicea was to be spewed out of God's mouth, and we address those recently. Uh, Philadelphia remains an enigma at this point. I have not really gotten into that, but I will at the feast, because the story is all there when you put it together. But we might say in modern terms, then, that this is addressed to people who have become scattered in the church today, because it was written for our admonition. These are all end-time prophecies. All the prophecies were written for the end-time more than for any other time. And though there may have been minor fulfillments in the meantime, they all come together and they have their greatest and final fulfillment here at the end of the age, just before Christ returns. So always bear that in mind when you read anything in any of the prophets. And even the whole New Testament was directed at, not the people who lived at that time, but at those who would succeed them. And it says not only were the apostles appointed, but those who would follow after them to teach the same things that the apostles had taught. So everything is forward-looking in the Bible until the return of Christ. So, so is this. Uh, so, many had been taken captive, some remained behind. Verse 4, thus says the eternal of hosts, I'm going to kind of skip through this for sake of time and just catch the highlights so that we get the story and the context as we go. Uh, this says the eternal of hosts of God of Israel to all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. So God was behind it. Uh, he caused them to be scattered into Babylon. And then he tells those who are left, Build you houses and dwell in them and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take wives and daughters and so on. Uh, and seek the peace city, uh, verse 7 of the city, where I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray to the eternal for it, for in the peace thereof shall you have peace. So Jeremiah's message at the beginning here to people who have been taken captive is that it is going to be a long captivity, and you might as well plant gardens and build houses and marry and give in marriage and so on. Go on with normal life. You're going to be there a while. But there were some people who did not like that message. They didn't want to even consider a long captivity. They wanted it to be short, and then that they would be brought home and blessed again. As the Jews today say, next year in Jerusalem is one of their mottos. 
They want it to end, even as we have. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, let, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely. He says, don't listen to people who say this is going to be short. Verse 10, For thus says the Eternal, After seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. So he was writing from the environs of Jerusalem. We'll find that he was born in Anatoth, which was a suburb of Jerusalem not far away. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an end that is a good expectation, would be better Hebrew here. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray to me, and I will hearken to you. And when you shall seek me and find me, oh, and you shall seek me and find me, when you shall search for me with all your heart. So God says, I'm going to leave you in captivity for 70 years, and you're not going to find me until you truly, with all your heart, seek me. Now, we've looked at that scripture many times over the last years, and I don't know where we've been, 30%, 50%, 70 80% of our heart turned to God. But he says, when you seek me with all your heart, and that is a huge commitment. It is not easy to do. It is not even easy to define. A human being with a deceitful, desperately wicked mind seeking God with all their heart. We will. Because he says that we will. We'll seek him early, I think it says, toward the end of Hosea. And I will be found of you, says the Eternal, verse 14, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the places and nations you've been, where I've driven you, says the Eternal, and I will bring you again to the place where I cause you to be carried away captive. So God says after a captivity, they'll come back to the environs of Jerusalem. Now, we have seen all these scriptures, and we know that the true Jerusalem is in this area, so is the true Zion. And it is desolate at this time, which we'll see some more of as we go on today. But it will again be inhabited. So notice that. And when you get to Anatoth, you'll see the same words, almost. But this is a prophecy overall of Jerusalem. And what we're going to see is that this big prophecy of the whole nation, or of the whole church today, if you will, was shrunk down... And Anatoth was used as a microcosm, or a mini-Jerusalem, or a type of Jerusalem. God used Jeremiah, and he used the small village of Anatoth to picture what would happen to the whole nation, that would happen to Jerusalem itself, because God had in mind to start something small here at the end, that would be a type of and a picture of the whole church. Okay? Verse 16, Know that thus says the Eternal of the King that sits upon the throne of David, uh, you've gone into captivity, 
And I will send upon them uh, sword, famine, pestilence, verse 17, and will make them like vile figs, and that cannot be eaten. They are so evil. So our nation today has become so evil, it's like a rotten fig to the taste. The church became like a rotten fig to God, and he spit it out, spewed it, as he said. So this is fulfilled today in the nation physical nations of Israel, and in spiritual Israel, the church. I will persecute them with a sword, with a famine, and with pestilence. And we'll see how that's a microcosm typified by Anatoth later on. I will deliver them to be removed of the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse and an astonishment and a hissing and a reproach among the nations where I've driven them. And then he says here the word of the Lord, in verse 20, You who are in captivity... To Babylon. Uh, again, he indicts them in verse 23. They've committed villainy in Israel, committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, have spoken lying words in my name, which I have not commanded them. Even I know and am a witness, says the Eternal. So, physical sin, spiritual sin, God sees it all. And he is a witness of it, of what's going on in our nation and in the church and with us here as well. Then he goes on to say in verse 26, The Eternal has made you a priest in the stead of Jehoiada the priest, that you should be officers in the house of the Eternal. For every man that is mad and makes himself a prophet, that you should put him in prison and in the stocks. Now therefore, why have you not reproved Jeremiah of Anatoth, which makes himself a prophet to you? What we have here is two false prophets. I kind of skipped over that. But there were two men specifically who did not like this idea of a long-term captivity. They said it would be short, and they made themselves prophets, but they accused Jeremiah of making himself a prophet. God had appointed Jeremiah. Go back and read chapter 1, where he says, I've known you from the womb, and I have chosen you, and don't be afraid of their faces, because I will see you through to victory, he told Jeremiah. That's right off the bat when he gave him his calling. So they say, you know, let's get rid of this guy who's telling us this is going to be a long time and it's going to be problematic to us. For therefore he sent to us in Babylon saying this captivity is long, build houses and so on. They didn't like that. Uh, Verse 32, Therefore thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will punish Shemaiah the Nehelamite and his seed, He shall not have a man to dwell among this people, neither shall he behold the good that I will do for my people, says the Eternal, because he has taught rebellion against the Eternal. So God said these prophets who had stood up and said, it's going to be short, don't worry about it, we're going to be cut off, because that was rebellion against God's word. And it would stand, and Jeremiah would stand. Chapter 30, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Eternal, saying, Thus speaks the Eternal God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken to you in a book. Write this down. It's not for now. It's for the future. For lo, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. We've read many scriptures showing that that will happen again here in the end time. 
These are the words the Eternal spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Eternal, we have heard a voice of trembling of fear and not of peace. So, God sent Jeremiah to tell them everything's going to turn out right in the long run, even though right now you have a voice of trembling, of frustration, of uncertainty, of fear, and lack of peace. Ask you now and see whether a man does travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. So uh, people were scared, they were frustrated, they were worried, concerned. And then he talks about the time of Jacob's trouble in verse 7, but that he will be saved out of it. Now we are spiritual Jacob, spiritual Judah, if you will. For it came to, shall come to pass in that day... Uh, says the Eternal of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck and will burst your bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. So God says, it looks pretty grim, but I'll fix it. And verse 8, they shall serve the Eternal their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. So there will be an end time type of David who comes up. Uh, verse 12 or third, or yeah, twelve. Your bruise is incurable, your wound is grievous. There is none to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. Reminds me of the place in Ezekiel where it talks about there is no balm in Gilead. The summer is done, the harvest is complete, we are not yet saved. Is there no balm? Is there no healing? And we feel that pressure today, don't we? When is God going to heal us? because we have so many afflictions, both physically and spiritually. When is God going to heal? All your lovers have forsaken you. They seek you not. So our alliances with the world and the Protestant world and the Catholic world and the world in general, Satan's world out there, aren't any help to us, that's for sure. <clears throat> Why do you cry for your affliction? Verse 15. 17, he says, after you're devoured... I will restore health to you, and I will heal you of your wounds, says the Eternal, because they called you an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeks after. So he says, I am going to heal you. But meantime, if you call on Zion, uh, they're not going to listen to you. No man seeks after Zion. How many people today seek after Zion, the true Zion? You don't have to be very old and know much math to count up the number of people who know the truth about where God is going to gather His people. There aren't very many who seek that. Thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will bring again, or turn around, the captivity of Jacob's tents, and have mercy on his dwelling places, and the city shall be built upon her own heap, and the palace shall remain after the manner thereof. So in Ezra and Nehemiah's time, the heap that was left of Jerusalem was rebuilt, uh, and was the, as was the temple. But those were torn down, and all the prophecies point forward to that again happening in the end time. Now, it says that Jerusalem would be desolate for many generations, and Jeremiah 9.31 and Isaiah 61 and many other scriptures we're familiar with. And no man dwell there, but it will be rebuilt here in the end time. 
Daniel 9 is as in time a prophecy can, as you can get. And it says 70 weeks will be used to build Jerusalem once the order is given for it to be done in the end time. And Daniel wouldn't even be understood until the end time. A closed, sealed book. So now it is slowly being opened, and we understand that Jerusalem has to be built in her own place, as Zechariah, I think, 12 says. It'll be built in her place, her own place, not a false place across in the Middle East. So it's a prophecy for today. So let's go on now. Verse 24, the fierce anger of the Eternal shall not return until he have done it, fulfilled these prophecies, and until you have, he have performed the intents of his heart, in the latter days you shall understand it. We are today in the latter days. So the context of what is being discussed here by Jeremiah is for the latter days unquestionably. So let's go on in the context. <coughs> At the same time, in the latter days, says the Eternal, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and you shall be my people. Thus says the Eternal, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. Now, the sword, famine, and pestilence, and starvation, spiritually, as Amos says in 8 or 9, has come upon the church, and it has been eviscerated, uh, decimated, and destroyed. But he says some will find grace in the wilderness and ultimately be brought to rest there. However, as we shall see, not without some trouble, trials, and tribulation. The Eternal has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you again. I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tabrets, and shall go forth in the dances of them that make merry. So out of captivity, trouble, and frustration, God is going to bring blessing and happiness. You shall yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. We'll see that Jerusalem will yet be inhabited a little further on. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. So he says, around Jerusalem, this will happen. And Anatoth is a symbol of that, which we will see in a moment. For there shall be a day that the watchman upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise you, and let us go up to Zion, to the Eternal our God. Now I know nothing in Scripture and nothing in history that shows that this has been fulfilled in the past. <clears throat> this is a prophecy for the latter days, as he said when he introduced it. They'll rise on Mount Ephraim. This is the nation of Ephraim. I think that's clearly proved by now. And go up to Zion, which is in Ephraim. The true Zion is in this nation. For thus says the Eternal, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Publish you, praise you, and say, O Eternal, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Isaiah 6 says there will be a 10% remnant. Uh, the same is said in Malachi 3. same is said uh, in Zechariah, where he talks about a remnant remnant in the Bible is 10%. So he's talking here about a remnant in the end time that will be gathered to Ephraim and Mount Zion. And a watchman will stand there and say, Arise, let's go to Zion. 
That was a prophecy for today. Okay? Behold, I will bring them from the north and gather them from the coasts of the earth. The blind, the lame, the woman with child, her that travails with child together, a great company shall return. Now, speaking spiritually of the church, I think uh, Elijah 7,000 fits here. Paul mentioned it as well as a spiritual remnant. Now, when the remnant of physical Israel returns, it'll be about 10% of what Israel is today. 90% having been killed, plus a few. Then he makes a, <clears throat> a change in birthright here, verse 9, where he says, I'm a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. So this nation got more blessings than any other of the nations and tribes of Israel here in the end time. And it is also where God raised up the church. The spiritual blessings have been more than doubled here in this nation. Uh, no other nation comes even close to what God called in the tribe of Ephraim. Manasseh, Britain comes second, I suppose, and then Canada and Australia and some of the others follow behind. But this nation is where it was raised up and where most were called. Uh, verse 10, He that scatters Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Verse 12, Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion. What they call Zion in the Middle East, they're not even sure which little finger of land it is out from the wall of the old city, but it is not a high mountain. It is just, actually it's, and you step up on the curb outside the city, you step down and start downhill into a cemetery, and that's the one they call Mount Zion. It is not the joy of all the land. Uh, you look at it and think, boy, I'm visiting a cemetery. Doesn't sound like this. They'll sing in the height of Zion and shall uh, now and shall flow together to the goodness of the eternal for wheat and wine and oil, the young of the flock, so there will be great prosperity and blessing given in this nation around the environs of Zion. Uh, verse 17, And there is hope in your end, says the Eternal, that your children shall come again to their own border. So this whole thing is about God returning spiritual Israel to the land that they came from, uh, which is, again, here, but most people don't do it, but don't know it. Uh, verse 20, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spoke against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, says the Eternal. So whether you're speaking of now with the church spiritually that will again be blessed as a microcosm of the future, or the actual millennium of itself, God is still concerned with Israel, the time, the time of Jacob's trouble and then blessing. Then he says, verse 22, How long will you go about, O backsliding daughter? For the Eternal has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. So instead of a man courting a woman, the women will compass or court the man. That is uh, back in Isaiah 4 through 6, <clears throat> where seven women will take hold of one man in the wilderness and say, Let us use your name. That's the beginning of verse six, uh, chapter 6, I believe. So, God is going to appoint a leadership that the remnant of the church will come to, to follow. Just as, in the beginning of the millennium, Christ will come and all will 
of course, come to him. But what happens first is a type of that bigger and final fulfillment with Christ himself. Uh, let's see. Verse 27, Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. Zechariah 2 says that Jerusalem shall be built as villages without walls, that he will be a wall of fire around it, and there will be much men and cattle there. So, same thing he's basically saying right here. Verse 31, The days come, says the Eternal, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. And how he was a husband to them in verse 32. Verse 34, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. And then God says, verse 32, Thus says the Eternal, which gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, the one who divides the seas, and so on. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Eternal, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. He's already told us and promised us that those heavenly bodies would remain there all the way through the history of mankind. So he's calling on that promise again here, saying, I'm bound by this. The eternal God is going to do what he said here. <coughs> so whether you're speaking of the church and a voice from Mount Ephraim saying, let's go to Zion, or whether you take that to the end when it is done again uh, to all the nations when Christ returns, both are a fulfillment and both are by God swearing on himself. And he can do that because he's God. He says he swears it in another place, but he, he states it again here. <clears throat> Verse 38, Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that the city shall be built to the Eternal from the tower of Hanamiel under the gate of the corner. So a time is coming when Jerusalem will be built. The old city of the fake Jerusalem in the Middle East is already there. It doesn't need to be built. It's there. But Daniel 9 says that an order will be given to build Jerusalem in a desolate place in several scriptures where there is no man. That's where it will be built here in the end time in 70 weeks and then the abomination will be set up and the great tribulation start. So very much an end time when Jerusalem will again be built whether it's spiritual Jerusalem, the church, and its temple, or spiritual Jerusalem uh, physically, that will be done too. Measuring line, verse 40, In the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields to the brook of Kidron, under the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be holy to the eternal. It shall not be plucked up nor thrown down anymore. So Jerusalem is going to be built. It is not going to be thrown down. The temple that is built there will not be thrown down. It will be defiled for three and a half years, 42 months, during the Great Tribulation and times of the Gentile, but it's not going to be torn down. They're going to keep it intact. So let's get to 32, and he will draw this down to a smaller uh, picture of the bigger picture we have just viewed. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Eternal in the tenth year of Zedekiah, uh, 
Verse 2, For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison which was in the king of Judah's house. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar didn't shut Jeremiah up. Uh, his own people and the king of Judah did. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, I'll give this city to the hand of the king of Babylon? I don't like... That wasn't something he wanted to hear. But God had told Jeremiah, This is the way it's going to be. You tell it, and I'll take care of you. But it wasn't popular. And some of the things I'm going to say a little later on when we get more into Anatoth are not comfortable, and we probably will not too be too happy with them, but they're in the story. They are in the story. Okay? Uh, verse 4, And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape, but he'll be delivered to Babylon and be eyeball to eyeball with him for what he did. Verse 6, And Jeremiah said, The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, shall come to you, saying, Buy my field that is in Anatoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. So, what Jeremiah is told here is to go buy a field, and that it involves redemption. It wasn't just any field, but it was a field that would equate to redemption. Keep that in mind because we've been reading how we would be taken into captivity and then redeemed and brought back to the original promised land. And let's see what he says about this as we go on. It's your right. God gave him right and told him to go do it. And it was his right to redeem it based on fam familial ties. So Hanamiel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Eternal, said to me, by my field, I pray you, that is Anatoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Eternal. It had been confirmed when what had been said actually happened. Now, in Hebrew, Anatoth means, again, uh, answered prayer. This wasn't an answer to prayer in this original situation. It was a direction from God, but it was a prophecy of the future when it would become an answer to prayer. So he bought the field for 17 shekels in verse 9, and then they weighed it all out, and he took the evidence of the purchase, which was sealed according to the law, and then he gave the evidence in verse 12 to Baruch for to be subscribed and written down as a, an actual purchase. Verse 13, And I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, uh, both which is sealed and this evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, and they may continue, or that they may continue, many days. So this was a transaction which was treated in a very unusual manner. Once it had normally been recorded in the secretarial, uh, or what would you call it, the county recorder today, once it was recorded, it was there as a public record. But this one was given more distinction 
by having it all put in a vase, sealed, and buried in the ground as a testimony that would be there for many days. Something to be dealt with at a much later date. Now you might say that it had to do with the long prophecy that Jeremiah had just prescribed upon Israel of 70 years, and it would be buried until that 70 years was completed and then dug up as a testimony that Israel would again and Judah come back to uh, the Jerusalem area. That could have been a, a local and a historic fulfillment. However, don't forget that God says, consider these things or understand them in the latter days. So the many days here is a prophecy way beyond even that 70 years. Now, a testimony to what? Verse 15, For thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. So the purpose of buying a field in Anatoth was to show that in the Holy Land, once again, men would buy and sell fields, they would plant crops, there would be animals and so on. We've already read that in the bigger prophecies starting in chapter 29 moving forward to here. But now Anatoth itself is used as a small example or a type of what would be happening again in the whole promised land, okay? So it was where Jeremiah had been born and lived, and it was a small village, and it was be, to be used as a type of the larger, because it's going to go back talking about Jerusalem overall here in a few moments. <clears throat> now, when I delivered the evidence of the purchase, I prayed to the Eternal, saying, verse 17, O Lord God, behold, you've made the heaven and the earth by the great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for you. You show loving kindness to thousands and recompense the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the eternal of hosts is his name. Great in counsel and mighty in work. For your eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways, not each other's ways, and according to the fruit of his own doings which had set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt even to this day, and in Israel among other men, and have made you a name as at this day. Now that's a pretty powerful prayer, isn't it? He'd been told to buy a field. Okay, so he bought it. And then they recorded it, and then he took the documents and stuffed them in a jar and buried them. And then he makes this powerful prayer. Now what about what had just occurred would stimulate him to give that kind of prayer unless it had a much larger meaning. And then he talks about coming out of Mitzrayim with signs and wonders and so on, the great God that we worship. So this must have had major ramifications for a future time, for God to have inspired such a powerful prayer out of such, in a sense, small transaction. In other words, 
pay attention, this transaction means something. Okay? Uh, Verse 24, Behold the mounts, they are come to the city to take it, given to the Chaldeans, because of the sword and the famine, the pestilence, and what you have spoken has come to pass, and behold, you see it. And you have said to me, O Lord God, buy you the field for money and take witnesses, for the city is given to the hand of the Chaldeans. Not uh, Anatoth, but Jerusalem. That was the city that was besieged by the Chaldeans and taken. So he's saying, here's a prayer. It entails all of Israel or all of the church. But it's in the context of a much smaller transaction that took place. And it represented going into captivity and having to hide the meaning of Anatoth and why that field was bought. Because it signified something for the future. So in the meantime, the city would be taken, people would be going to captivity... Verse 26, Then came the word of the Eternal of Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Eternal, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? I can do what I want. Therefore, thus says the Eternal, I will give this city to the hand of the Chaldeans and Nebuchadnezzar, and he'll take it. They'll fight and so on. Uh, And then verse 30, he says, Because Israel has done evil before me. So it's not just Anatoth here again, but the whole nation or the whole church, if you will. This city, verse 31, has been a provocation of my anger and my fury, that I should remove it before my face. Verse 33, they've turned their back on me, though I taught them. And then it mentions their abominations and sins and so on. Uh, Then he says concerning the city in verse 36, Whereof you say it shall be delivered in the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger and in my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them again to this place. So again, he says, what is happening here is symbolic of a future event where God will again gather his people. I'll cause them to dwell in safety place of safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. So, tied up in this prophecy is a great destruction of Israel, and again of the church, but in it there is an answer where God will again gather his people. The remnant of the church first and the remnant of Israel second when Christ returns. Again, duality. I'll make an everlasting covenant, verse 40, with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good. I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. Again, Isaiah 41 where he says he'll plant seven trees or churches in the desert a remnant of all the churches of Revelation 2 and 3 that remain to this day. They were nose to tail through history, but the attitudes and all of those seven churches all exist today. 
Verse 42, For thus says the Eternal, Like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring them upon all the good that I promised them as well. And fields shall be bought in this land, whereof you say, It is desolate without man or beasts, it is given to the hand of the Chaldeans. Men shall buy fields for money, and subscribe evidences, and seal them. And then he mentions different places in the original promised land that that would occur. Now we know where the original promised land is. We know that Jerusalem is desolate, that no man, no one lives there today. But they will again, by land, in the promised land, not just around Jerusalem, because that will be the temple area and the Jerusalem city area, but in the tribes, as it mentions here, of the promised land. So that is a story of Anatoth and its meaning in the past and for today. Now let's go for a few moments to Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33. Again the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people, and say to them, when I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their coasts and set him for their watchman. So he says, if I'm going to cause trouble to come, and we see trouble bearing down on the nations of Israel today, we see a great power from the north and from the east who are combining with many nations to set up a coalition against America first, because she is the great whore of revelation that the beast and the false prophet will destroy first. So, uh, we have to watch out for what's coming and warn everybody as much as possible of that. So, if they set him for their watchman, the people do this. If when he sees the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever hears the sound of the trumpet and takes not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning. His blood shall be upon him. But he that takes warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchman see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So that is a general statement. Now there is a specific statement which applied to Ezekiel himself. So you, O son of man, I have set you a watchman to the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. And then he talks about how the wicked uh, shall surely die. And if you speak and warn him of his way, uh, he'll die in his iniquity. But your blood will, his blood will I require in your hand if you don't warn him. And then he goes on to say, if the righteous are war or the wicked is warned and they change and become righteous, they'll be saved. If the righteous, however, turn to sin and to wickedness, they will not be saved. And that each man will uh, suffer for himself. I won't go through all that. I'm sure we're quite familiar with it. But I want you to know that if there is danger, we must be warned. And if we are warned, then it comes on our own head, not on the head of he who warned or didn't warn, depending on the circumstance. Now let's go quickly to Isaiah 10. 
and see the word anatop come up again and briefly examine at least the context thereof. I'll run out of time. I've got to keep moving here. We're all familiar with Isaiah 7 and the conspiracy of Syria and Ephraim against Judah and the church and how God says that it won't happen because Ephraim will be destroyed and we are looking at the beginnings of the destruction of Ephraim, this nation today. But he said he'd give a sign of Emmanuel, uh, the Christ, and then he goes on to say that the Assyrian is coming and he will destroy, end of chapter 7. Chapter 8, he talks about the Assyrian again and how they will associate themselves and come against God and his people. And he tells us, God is with us, that is, Emmanuel is with us. That's what Emmanuel means. And he says then that there will be a confederacy, a conspiracy, a coalition, whatever name you want to put on it. Uh, and he says in verse 13 or 12, Not to fear them, nor be afraid, but sanctify or set God aside in your heart, and let him be your dread, and he'll be for a sanctuary. So he says, Seal this testimony, verse 16, and this law among my disciples, and I will wait upon the Eternal that hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Many places in the prophecies, God says he will hide his face from us. And then he says we're to look for him, and he will turn his face back to us, like we've just been reading in Jeremiah. And when they'll say to you, seek familiar spirits and the wizards and prophets and so on, don't listen to that. Listen to God. To the law and to the testimony, verse 20, if they speak not according to this word, the book itself, it is because there is no light in them. It goes on down, talks about a son being given to us. We're told to travail and bring forth a child in Micah 4, which is representative of Christ, that he is to be born in our character and our minds, that we're to live like him, and that then he will appear to us and dwell with us there in Zechariah 2. So this is the end-time context that is being talked about here. And then he talks about uh, verse chap chapter 9, verse 13, For the people turns not to him that he smites, that he smites them, neither do they seek the eternal of hosts. Therefore, the eternal will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush, in one day. A short period of time, in other words. The leaders cause them to err, and so on. Chapter 10, then, verse 5, he says, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger, and the staff in their hand is my indignation. It says the Assyrian, verse 7, doesn't think in his heart that he's mean. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. And then he begins to name some of those. Uh, then he talks in verse 12, For for it shall come to pass that when the Eternal has performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria. So after the Assyrian comes and destroys this land, the Spiritual Assyrian, the Dukachas, have already destroyed the church. So there's a parallel there. Then God will destroy the Assyria, uh, as he did the, the one Dukach, and the other is completely off in Babylon now. Anyway, he talks about Israel being destroyed and how a remnant will escape in chapter 20. There won't be many left. 
but a remnant of Israel, and such as are escaped to the house of Jacob, shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall, well, shall stay upon the Eternal, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob. So the remnant of the church comes first, the remnant of the physical Israel comes second. Interesting in verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts, O my people that dwell in Zion. So this is speaking to specific people, ones who dwell in Zion. Not others, just those. Be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite you with a rod, and shall lift up his staff against you after the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and my anger in their destruction. So, even those who dwell in Zion are going to be threatened by the Assyrian. He will appear as a real threat. We'll go to Micah 4 in a moment and see that. Uh, and then he talks about Gideon. You remember the story of Gideon and how the army was reduced from thousands down to 300. And then they didn't even really have to fight. They just waved their lanterns and yelled. And the Assyrians all jumped out of bed and killed each other. Verse 27, It shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off your shoulder and his yoke from off your neck, whether it be planning and zoning or the actual uh, encroachment upon us of the Assyrian army, the New World Order army that is about to come upon us. He'll take that burden off and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. The two witnesses are anointed to lead at that time, and it is under their leadership that men will be set up to destroy the Assyrian. We'll see that in just a moment in Micah 4. But let's go on down and see what the Assyrian has done. It talks about a bunch of villages and towns, verse 28 and 29, where they have gone, where they have destroyed. Uh, in verse 30 it says, Lift up your voice, O daughter of Gallim, Cause it to be heard to Laish, O poor Anatoth. O poor Anatoth. Maybe an answer to prayer, but there's some difficulty, obviously, with Anatoth that is mentioned here, and that they will also be threatened by the Assyrian. So all these nations are going to be threatened or overthrown. Uh, verse 32, As yet shall he remain at Nob that day, the Assyrian again. He shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Now, shaking your hand at is both a threat, and it can also be a sign of frustration. I'm going to get you guys, but he can't, because God won't allow it. Behold, the Eternal, the Lord of hosts, shall lock the bow with terror, and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled. Just as in the days of Gideon, God is going to humble the Assyrian and draw him down. He shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. The Assyrian will have, in, uh, will have invaded Lebanon and will think he's going to destroy and take over this whole nation. But those who dwell in Zion are going to be protected. But poor Anatoth is going to be threatened. Now let's go to Micah 4 and see this put in a little bit different light. We'll start drawing this to a close here pretty quick, but uh, this we need to see. Micah 4, 
In the last days, so this is an end time prophecy, chapter, verse 1 of chapter 4 of Micah. He talks about every man sitting under his vine and under his fig tree. The only other real place this is truly prophesied is in uh, uh, Zechariah 3 with the two witnesses and every man dwelling under his vine and fig tree. In other words, a time of peace and prosperity as a microcosm for the millennium which it pictures. Uh, let's see, in verse 6, In that day, says the Eternal, will I assemble her that halts, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. Uh, Isaiah 35 is not necessarily millennial. Its first application is with the end-time church, the latter temple, where he says there, the blind will see and the deaf will hear and the lame will walk and so on, just as he says it right here uh, in this context in the last days. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from thenceforth even forever. So it's going to be back at Zion that this occurs. Now he says, what in the, what in the meantime, what's going on? Verse 8, And you will tower the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto you shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall become to the daughter of Jerusalem. So God is going to restore government and leadership at Zion, with his church, the end-time ladder temple. The authority, the government will come to them first. The two witnesses will be put over them as they are drawn from around the world. But there's trouble first. Verse 9, Now why do you cry out aloud? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? Herbert Armstrong perished? And his work, Sardis, a calling work, also perished. It's gone. Uh, where was it here now? Uh, For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. So those that God is beginning to call out here to do the end time work are going to be in pain like labor. Trying to bring forth Christ, but in pain doing so. Doesn't come easy. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion. So he says, during this time, we will be in pain. We will be laboring. We'll be in trouble. So, what do you do? For now shall you go forth out of the city and dwell in the field and go even to Babylon. Out of the midst of Babylon, as one scripture says, but even still in Babylon, out into a field. Uh, that word field there can mean wilderness or desolate place or out away from uh, a lot of people. There the Eternal shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now, remember what we just read in Isaiah. Now also many peoples are gathered against you that say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. Remember, the Assyrian shook his fist. I'll get you, saying the same thing here. But they know not the thoughts of the Eternal, neither understand they His counsel, for He shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. He'll cut them down and gather them like you would a crop. And He tells Zion to rise and thresh, that He'll make their horn iron and their hooves brass. Now, the Assyrian will come into our land. He's speaking here of, I think, Zerubbabel, uh, 
and of Christ ultimately, because Zerubbabel is a type of Christ. But verse 5, And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land, and when he shall tread in our palaces. Then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land, and when he treads within our borders. Same thing Isaiah 10 says. Not to fear it, it's coming. Oh, poor Anatoth, you're right in the middle of it. Okay? Now let's look at one more back in Jeremiah 11. This chapter, uh, 9, 10, 11, it's all talking about the same thing we read about in Jeremiah uh, 29 to 32. That God is unhappy with all of Israel. He's also unhappy with the church. And He has divided and scattered it just as He will scatter uh, physical Israel now since He has already scattered the church. So this is drawn down now to a very specific prophecy. Just as what we saw in Jeremiah 29 through 32 was of a captivity overall of the peoples of God, physically. But then it used Anatoth as a small microcosm, a very specific prophecy of a field being bought there that would signify peace and prosperity and land being sold there sometime in the future. Okay? But there would be trouble first. So here he draws a bigger picture, and I don't have time to go through it all, but it's the same story we've already read in 29 to 32. He even says in verse 14, Pray not for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry to me for their trouble. Hasn't it seemed that it's been hard to find God in the years that we've been here? That it's hard to find God? It's hard to see many healings. We've seen some. But we've not been blessed in the way of Isaiah 35 or 51 or 54 or some of those scriptures that talk about the blessings that are about to come on God's people, the church, at Zion and Jerusalem. It's been difficult. It's been hard. We've been in labor and in pain to bring forth, have we not? Frustrating, difficult, hard to do. I don't know about birth, but you ladies do. And from what I've seen and observed, it ain't easy. It's hard. It's difficult. It's painful. And that's what we're in right now. God said so. But he says we'll triumph over the Assyrian when he comes into our land, doesn't he? So he says, you'll be delivered. says right there in Micah 4 that if you go out in the field, that is where you will be delivered. So here we are, and we're waiting for that delivery to occur, and the Assyrian is just about to come into our land. So these things aren't far off. But he brings this down to a specific prophecy involving Anatoth again. Verse 15, What has my beloved to do in my house, seeing he has worked lewdness with many, and the holy flesh is passed from you? When you do evil, then you rejoice. So here we find ourselves, the remnants of Sardis, the flung sputum of Laodicea, 
self-righteous, thinking we have nothing that we need, that we're okay. I'm okay, you're a dink, but I'm okay, is basically the way the church approaches each other today. And it's the way we, unfortunately, have approached each other here. Verse 16, The Eternal called your name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. There's Worldwide Church of God. Uh, God planted it. And Ezekiel 17, we already rehearsed what would happen to it, and it would wither and die. Here it's depicted as a tree that has the branches stripped off, and then it is drawn down even further to Anatoth itself. Let's see that. For the eternal of hosts that planted you has pronounced evil against you for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense to Baal. Now that, up to that point, I think is referring to Worldwide Church of God, which committed idolatry. We put ourselves and everything else ahead of God. And it was that lukewarmness and that self-righteousness that caused us to be scattered. But now, in verse 18, it turns to a more specific and a smaller prophecy. Verse 18, The Eternal has given me knowledge of it, and I know it. Then you showed me their doings. So Jeremiah is speaking of himself here. Remember we already read that he would be uh, jailed, that he would go through all kinds of ignominy and difficulty, but he would buy that field. Uh, But I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter, and I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be no more remembered. So that is the uh, attitude that those men had against Jeremiah, and said, God, he's a false prophet, let's get rid of him. Uh, verse 20, But, O Lord of hosts, that judges righteously, that tries the reins in the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for unto you have I revealed my cause. So, Jeremiah is crying out to God for his deliverance. Therefore, thus says the Eternal of the men of Anatoth, that seek your life, saying, Prophesy not in the name of the Eternal, that you die not by our hand. Whether it's physical, which it was with Jeremiah, or spiritual, which it also was with Jeremiah and his prophecies, uh, it's here. Therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. Hence, Ezekiel 33, where a watchman should let you know if there is a sword and famine coming. Here, against Anatoth itself. And there shall be no more remnant of them, for I will bring evil upon the men of Anatoth even the year of their visitation. So Anatoth was established for a godly purpose to indicate that again in this land, the promised land that we now recognize, men would come and build houses and inhabit them and there would be peace and prosperity in the future, 
and it shows that that will happen during the days of the two witnesses and the remnant there in Zechariah 2. Zechariah 1 and 2 and 3. In this place will I bring peace. Haggai 2 verse 9. So, under the leadership of the two witnesses and of the remnant who build the latter temple, God is going to bring peace. But there will be some problems, I think, in Anatoth that God himself will deal with. If this prophecy means anything, now maybe it's just something ancient and doesn't mean anything today. Don't bet on it. God did not have Moses deal with Miriam and Aaron. He took care of it. God did not have Peter deal with Ananias and Sapphira. God took care of it. It appears here that whatever this prophecy means, God will take care of it. So we have really nothing to worry about unless we are somehow on the bad side of this prophecy. Now, we're going into the Feast of Tabernacles, and I don't want us to go with a downer, but there's enough confusion and enough frustration right now in Anatoth that I thought I should address this before the feast, that we might understand that the prophecies are all here, and God will fulfill all prophecies. Now, we need to be sure that we are doing, as Jeremiah told us, to seek God with our whole heart, and we will find Him and He will deliver us. And that, O poor Anatoth, will shake its face and its hand, its hand, at the Assyrian, and God will cause seven, even eight men of the remnant that are beginning to gather in the desert and destroy the Assyrian. So, in the end, it comes out good. In the meantime, there would be prophecies and we would be in trouble and travail to bring forth birth. Let's go to one more scripture before we close, because there has been a lot of negative and difficult uh, frustration and so on going on, based upon a lot of different things. And I'm not going to go into all that. I don't think it's necessary. We just need to understand how we ought to be thinking. Where God would have us go, what He would have us do, when we face these trials, troubles, and tribulations of poor Anatoth, just before God delivers. And it is a, an attitude that we should always have. It's replete throughout the Old Testament. It is in the New Testament. And we just heard it read to us at Charlotte Nichols' funeral, her favorite verse. And I'm going to read it again because it tells us where our thinking ought to be. If our thinking is anywhere than here, it is wrong, stinking thinking, if you will. Here is where our minds should be. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, that is, resound rightly, not necessarily true rumors. That's not what he's talking about. This is an entirely positive context. 
Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good, not an evil report, whatever is of a good report, if there be any virtue, just a little, any virtue, and if there be any praise, anything to praise, whatever, think on these things. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, per Zechariah fourteen sixteen, is for us to come before the King, the Lord of hosts, and praise and glorify His name and worship Him during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you come with a pure heart and attitude in a positive frame of mind and you crowd out all thoughts of negativity, rumor, gossip, backbiting, any negative thinking, and replace it with Philippians 4, verse 8, then you have a very good chance of keeping the Feast of Tabernacles in the spirit and the mind and the attitude of Christ himself. So let's set aside our trials, our troubles, our problems, our difficulties that we face right here today. Let's set them aside and think good thoughts, positive thoughts, any virtue, any praise, and worship the King, the Lord of hosts.